felt a little different coming up here without having people read for five to ten or even fifteen minutes before we got started. There is, I think two weeks ago when Tanner preached, we had like fifteen to sixteen minutes of people just reading Genesis um, beforehand, which I thought was awesome. And I, Tanner referenced this last week or maybe on a Sunday night that we're going to have actually like our, our church reading straight through Genesis that we can be able uh, it's just a really cool thing of just hearing us read the Word of God. Um, but we did that for nine months. So nine months we spent walking through Genesis, walking from creation up until we see the people um, entering into to Egypt. And now we're going to step into to a different book. We're going to open up um, the book of James. Um, if you were here on Sunday night last week, you saw that we um, began to, as a church, memorize James 2, 1, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 together. And those, that's what we're going to look at this morning as well. Uh, we're going to be in James 1, 1 through 4. What we realize, Tanner kind of referenced this last week, that this morning's passage is really building upon what we saw near the end of Genesis. It wasn't necessarily planned that way as we first... Um, felt God pointing towards um, James. We didn't really connect those two as, as kind of building off of what we've been on in Genesis, but that's how God continues to work things out. Um, but I'm going to set up James for a little bit. Spend some time looking at J- James, but setting up where we're going to be going, who James is writing to, who is James. But even before we get there, what I want to just be very clear with, with is just, like, it's my hope, it's my expectation that as we go through James together, it's my expectation that it's going to have a very big, a very profound impact on us as a church. If you're looking for a practical book in the Bible, James is it. James is full of these practical commands for us as a church. There's 108 verses in this book. 108 verses. I think we read more than that on some Sunday mornings going through Genesis. But in these 108 verses, there's 59 specific commands given to the church. Command after command. God saying, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what my, my people are going to do. Verse 22 of chapter 1 very clearly says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only. It's not just about reading the words. It's not just about hearing the words. But it's about obeying the words, doing the words. James is going to touch on a lot of different things. Trials, poverty, materialism, favoritism, social justice, the tongue, worldliness, boasting, praying, sickness. Over and over and over, we're going to see James being very clear with how we as the church, how we are to respond when we read the Word. We're going to be talking about a lot of tough stuff. A lot of tough stuff. But we're going to also be called to obedience, called to action as we read the Word. One of the commentaries I read this week put it this way. He says, James writes with a passionate desire for his readers to be uncompromisingly obedient to the Word of God. 
uncompromisingly obedient. And I, and I hope that's what we hear as the church. As we read this word, as we experience God in his word, he just grows this desire in us to not just read the word, not just hear the word, but to do it, to be obedient, to let that call us to action. So again, I say, this is a challenging book for us. It's going to be a challenging book for us. And I'm really excited for, to see the way this book is going to, to shape us as a church. And it's going to start off with a bang. It's going to start off with a very hard topic to talk about. Our heart. How we respond when we face trials. Our attitudes. Our response when we face trials. So rhetorical question. What if I was to ask you what the most challenging thing in your life has been? The most challenging thing in your life. The biggest trial, the biggest difficulty. Think about it for a second. Maybe it was a specific event. Maybe it was an entire season of life. Maybe it's a season of life that you're in right now. Maybe it's financial hardship. Maybe it's sickness, death, abuse, loss. For many of us, the answers are going to vary wildly. We've all had different experiences. We've had different lives. But what if I was to also then say that experience that event, that season should lead you to have joy. It's kind of wild. It's kind of wild. It's disorienting. It's confusing. Some of you might get angry just at the thought of me saying that. But I'm not saying that. James is saying that. Like, I'm not saying that. James is saying that. And we're going we're to look more into this. Didn't say, the, didn't say that trial, that time, was joy in and of itself, but that it's, that's what it's leading us towards. Let's look at verse 1. We're just going to start in verse 1 here in James. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. So right off the bat, see, he introduced himself as James. The, there is an apostle named James, um, but that's not who this is. Um, this would be James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, the same James that we see in the book of John. It references that Jesus' brothers did not initially believe in him. Um, this is that James, the one who didn't believe in Jesus right away. This is also the James that we see that he then became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, that he, he, wrote a, he wrote a little bit in Acts. Not that he wrote Acts, but there's, there's some, uh, a letter that he wrote to a church in Acts. Um, we see now that he writes this book of James. And then look how he introduces himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of all the ways that James could have introduced himself. James, the brother of Jesus. 
James, the other son of Mary and Joseph. James, a, a leader of the local church. But that's not how he introduces himself. He's, he says, a servant. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he's not writing this letter from a, just this place of authority, this place of being higher or above the readers. But he's writing this place of being like in the trenches with them. He's, he's writing with authority. He's saying, that God, God says, do this, do this. This is how you obey the word of God. But right off the bat, he's identifying himself with them. I'm a servant of God, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think right as we get started here, like, that kind of really introduces us to the heart of this letter. We're in this together. This isn't a book that's written just to people with certain titles or just with certain positions. Because that's not what following Jesus is all about. It's not a book written to people just with these titles, just with positions, or just with a status. It's not about who's a pastor, who's a deacon, who, who serves the kids, who serves lunch, who does this, who does that. It's not about that, but it's about what it looks like to submit our lives to God. Like we're in this together. We're in this together. So he's writing to the 12 tribes of, in the dispersion. So who are we talking about? In short, there's a lot of, there's like books written upon about this population of people. But we're talking about Jewish Christians that have been scattered throughout the whole like Mediterranean um, area, this whole region. We see that the, the Christians start to be scattered in Acts. We see the stoning of Stephen. People start to scatter because of persecution. And these are really who, who James is writing to here. The 12 tribes should be, should sound familiar to us. We just finished Genesis. We saw um, these, these 12 brothers. They, so we see them go into Egypt. But then throughout the New Testament, what we're going to see is that these 12 tribes, like God's chosen people, we then see the church begin to take this place of who, who are referenced as the chosen people of God. You can, you can kind of see this shift through the New Testament. But you also see the connection to the people of God, the chosen people, these 12 tribes. It's the 12 tribes in the dispersion. All right, so we're reading this letter written by James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. He's, written, he's writing to believers who've been scattered about for a variety of different reasons, a lot of which was persecution. But as we get into this, I just, want, I just want to remind you once again, like we're in this together. I hope that this time in James we can grow together, we can mature together, we can learn what it means to be uncompromisingly obedient to the Word of God. So remember the question I asked earlier, the, that, that trial, whatever, whatever it was that came to your mind, maybe it's an event, a season, a whole period of time in your life. But now with that back in mind, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. And this is what we've been memorizing, what we're starting to memorize together on Sunday nights. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of God saying, count it all joy. Count it all joy. But before we get to the joy part, I want to talk just for a couple minutes about that, the word before that, trials. Trials. It's, we think about what trials are these specific Christians, what kind of things are they facing? They've been scattered from their home. They've been scattered throughout the entire region because of persecution. As we, we see different parts of this um, throughout the rest of the book, but they're losing status in society. You can imagine them losing jobs, losing, we see with the persecution as the stoning of Stephen, losing lives, maybe losing families. Facing this, this, this real persecution because of their faith. It's easy, as I was first reading this this week, I think it's easy for us to be disconnected from this, though, especially here in this country. It's easy to be, it's easy to be disconnected somewhat from real, genuine persecution for, for our faith. You see it some. You see it here and there. You see things that have happened. But to the same degree, I think we're removed a little bit. But it's important to note that as James is writing to he's not only writing about the most severe type of persecution you could be facing. That's not the only kind of trials that James is writing about. So Tanner got into some Greek-Hebrew last week, and so I was like, oh, I've got to do it too. I've got to um, keep up. But really, I think this is helpful. So the word for trials is periasmos. The, the, the word being used for trials, it's used a couple different times throughout the New Testament. And what this means is it's a demonst- it demonstrates trouble, or something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, or joy in someone's life. Demonstrates trouble, or something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, or joy in someone's life. Remember, he's writing about various trials, various types of things that we might face that demonstrates trouble, pattern of, breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, or joy. It's easy to think that James is only writing about the worst of the worst. That, that oh, those, those little trials, don't worry about those. That's not what he's talking about. He's only talking about that most intense persecution. But that's, that's, not, that's not what that word means. It's, it's talking about various types of trials. Various types of things that we might face in this world. And I was just thinking about like the different extremes. I think the, the kind of trials that we might face. Just kind of thinking through my day. Like crazy drivers on the way to work disrupt my peace and comfort. If you want to think of it that way. Sleeping past an alarm. That breaks my pattern of peace, my routine. Plans falling through can disrupt patterns of comfort, happiness. And that kind of might seem small or, or trivial. But I think you see a wide range of trials that we might face. On a deeper note, though, think about a trial that is a struggle to, 
daily meet ends meet. A daily have enough money. Or a, a trial, a struggle through tension at work. Maybe it's trials that come through parenting. Maybe it is receiving backlash or a level of persecution for your faith. Maybe there, was, there have been situations where you've lost status or, or lost an opportunity for a job promotion because you said, oh, I can't work on Sundays or I, I need to be here. You've, you've lost opportunities for advancement in this world. Maybe trials have come as you've served within the church. We've, we've talked about like stepping into the mess, stepping into the lives of others, bearing one another's burdens. Like There are trials that come with that. Maybe a trial, Tanner talked about this, maybe it's a 20-year trial that he was talking about with Joseph. Maybe that's what you feel like you're walking through. Maybe that is what you're walking through. Like there is all sorts of things that you and I might face. Like I, I have no, I'm not going to pretend that we're all hearing this the same way. Again, we all have different experiences, we have different backgrounds, we have different lives. But the reality of trials, it's true. It's reality. We face trials. Some of these trials come about because of our own sin. Some of these come about because of the sin of others. Some of these come about because we live in a sin-stained world. But as followers of Jesus, we can expect these are going to happen. We can expect that we're going to encounter trials of various kinds. But how are we going to respond to them? How do we respond when we face those trials? Look back at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy. Count it all joy. As I said, as I referenced earlier, it's disorienting when we first read that. How, how do we count this as joy? How do we count trials? How, what does that mean? Like, how do we count it as joy when we're struggling to get by? How do we count it as joy when dealing with the death of a friend or a family member? How do we look at it with joy when we face persecution? How do we look upon it as joy we're daily struggling to feel wanted or to feel loved or to feel valued. It doesn't really make sense. It, it's, I keep thinking that word, just disorienting. It's, it's hard to understand. And I don't want to stand up here and say that it's easy. I don't want to stand up here and pretend that, oh, when you're facing something, you just got to count it as joy and move on, that it's this easy thing. Because that's not true. That is not true at all. And I think that's, right, just, let's just establish what this is not meaning. Because this does not mean we just put on a smiling face. It doesn't mean you just, oh, grin and bear it. It doesn't mean that when trials happen, when you're walking through that event or through that season of trial, that you just put on a happy face. Tell everybody you're doing fine. Tell everybody you're doing great. You just, hey, counting his joy. That's, that's not what this is talking about. 
because I said this a minute ago, it's not the trial itself that is joyful. It's not the trial itself that is joy. Think, think about the example of Jesus and Lazarus for a second. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. He, he dies. And in a moment, Mary and Martha, their life is turned upside down. Grief, sorrow, loss. All the emotion that must come with losing a sibling. And Jesus doesn't arrive on the scene. Jesus doesn't come in and say, well, just count it as joy. Just be happy. That's not at all what Jesus does here. Jesus weeps with them. He comforts them. He empathizes with them. Like, finding joy in trials, finding joy in times like this is not just a superficial fix. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's not just about smiling. It's not just about saying you're all right. It's more than that. Let's so zoom out for just a moment when we're talking about this. Looking at what Tanner talked about last week as we ended Genesis. Remember, Joseph endured 20 plus years of trial. Thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, innocently thrown into jail, left there, left there, trial after trial. Yet remember verse 20. Joseph is talking to his brothers. He says, As for you, you meant, it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But God meant it for good. You see, through trial, it wasn't because he was the absence of trial, it wasn't that that he learned that God was sovereign, that God was in control, that God was meaning it for good. But it was through the trial that he realized this. Joseph had learned that even in hardship, even in trial, even as he was in jail, God was meaning it for good. And I don't imagine this being Joseph smiling all the time. I don't imagine this as, as Joseph just being the happiest person the entire time. Because he was superficially putting on that facade. Like, that's not at all what, how this text even reads. But Joseph, what we see is that his inner joy, his inner confidence in the sovereignty of God, that God was in control, his, that's what his confidence was in. And that God of Joseph is still God today. Like God is still in control. God is still working for the good of his people. That God is still God. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. See, God was sovereignly at work in Joseph's life. That same God is God over your life amidst your trials, amidst the pain, the loss, the heartache, that God is still God. We're going to come back. But look at verses 3 and 4. Remember, James already said, count it all joy. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, these trials, these, these moments in life when everything is just turned upside down, when it's not at all what you had planned, when there's suffering, when there's pain, when there's loss, those aren't just days and years of your life that are wasted. I know it often feels that way. James is saying it's producing something within you. Steadfastness is the word he uses. Steadfastness. Patience. Endurance. Long-suffering. But what does that mean? What does that mean, producing endurance, long-suffering, steadfastness? When I think of someone who is steadfast, I think of someone who is not easily shaken, someone who is steady, who is unmoving, that even when trials come, they're unwaving. But as I think of people that I know in my life that I think that defines, when I see them be like, man, what a witness they have. They're steadfast. They're unmoving. They look a whole lot like Jesus. Those are the people that have been through trial. They've been through difficulty. They've been through hardship. They've had a lot of pain. And they've learned what it means to be steadfast. But that only happens as we learn more and more to trust in who God is. It sucks. It's hard. It is not easy. And Tanner said this a few weeks ago, that a sign of spiritual maturity in our life is how quickly we get to a point where we realize that God is working out something far greater, far bigger than we can see. And how fast we come to realize that, how fast we come to realize that is something that, that changes over time. Often you don't see people's Faith really come out until they're squeezed, until things happen. There's a lot of people I think you can say, wow, look at their faith. Look at the way they, they raise their hand during worship. Look at the way they do all the right things. Look at the way that they serve. Look at all these things they do. But when things get really hard, when life starts throwing all sorts of stuff at you, what is the response? What is the way we respond when trials happen? I think that's when you start to see genuine faith coming out. Listen, God is growing us. He's growing you. And it's in the moment, it is unbelievably hard. It can be unbelievably hard. It's, 
it's always in the moment extremely difficult to see the long-term picture. It's incredibly difficult to see what God is doing five years, ten years, twenty years. But looking back, you can start to see. We see examples all through Scripture. And we say, yes, we see this. We, we acknowledge, yes, God works that way. Look what he did in Joseph. Look what he did in Abraham. That he waited 10, 20, 30 years for some of these things. We say, yeah, God did that. But that's not how God's going to work in my life. Things are awful right now. Things just suck. But God's not going to do that for me. That God is God today. That same God who did that is God today. Remember, God is at work in our lives. As believers in Jesus, like God is intimately at work in us, making us more and more like Jesus. He promises that. He says, I'm going to keep working on you. I'm going to keep refining. I'm going to keep growing this in you. And I f- I'm going to ask another question. I know I've asked a couple But this is a question that changed the way I saw this passage. It's a question that as I heard this, as I asked myself this, it changed the way I saw this. Trials. Joy. And I was pausing for a second. I was stalling for a moment to let things settle. But... Let me ask this question. What is, what is your goal in life? What is your goal in life? It's a very broad question. I realize it's an extremely broad question. And I don't want to oversimplify this in two different answers. I don't want to say there's only these two answers because I know it's not that simple. But is your goal in life worldly? Is it to be successful in this world? Is it to have the best job? Is it to make the most money? Is it to have the prettiest Facebook family? Is it to have the nicest car, be able to take the nicest vacations? Is it to have the most stuff, the nicest title? Is it to look better in the eyes of the world? Because if these things are our goals, trials are going to rock us. If these are our goals, these are our goals, it's no wonder that these things rock us so much because it throws everything off. It changes our worldly plans. Things don't go according to plan. These trials can rattle us to the core. But if our goal and I think this is something that as God changes us, as God shapes us, as God molds us, he, I think he gives us this goal more and more and more, that we desire this more and more. The goal of glorifying God as we look more and more like Jesus, which is God's goal for our lives, to glorify him as we look more like Jesus. Remember James 2, James 1, 2 through 4, is teaching that, these trials that we encounter, these trials of our lives are producing in us steadfastness. 
He's making us more like Jesus. And if our goal in life is to glorify God as we look more like Jesus, then we can find joy in our trials because they're making us more like Jesus. That's moving us towards that goal. Let me, let me say that again. If our goal is to glorify God and looking more like Jesus, then we can find joy in trial because they're moving us towards our goal. I'm not saying that makes us happy. I'm not saying this makes us smile all the time. I'm not saying this always makes us look all pretty and, and put together in the eyes of the world. Because joy is in the heart. Joy is not on the face. Joy is not all smiles. But joy is at peace knowing who we are. Knowing who, what our identity is. Knowing what Christ has done for us. Only through this lens, only through the lens of the gospel, only through the lens of knowing what God is doing, only through the lens of this, does any of this make sense. Another question. Do we spend more time asking God to get us out of trials or to strengthen us through the trials? This one's been super convicting for me this week. Do we spend more time asking God to get us out of trials than we do for strength to get through them? Better yet, do we spend more time complaining and wallowing in our trials than we do to ask God to strengthen us through them? Again, this does not mean we go seek out trials. That's not what James is teaching. But we don't have to run away from trials. We don't have to run away from hard things. Because God walks through trials with us. And God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Let me just give you a couple examples. We read this in the, well, we've been reading to the kids every night. We read through Daniel in the lion's den, where Daniel's thrown into a pit of lions because he refuses to obey the king as the king commands him to sin. He's thrown into the lion's den. Listen, God delivers Daniel. God saves Daniel. But Daniel spent a night in a lion's den. God spent, Daniel spent a night in a lion's den. He didn't remove him from the trial, but saw him through the trial. Paul knows this. Imprisonment, shipwrecked, beaten, he lived with this thorn in the flesh his entire life. We don't even know what that was. He asked for deliverance from this. And what did God say? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But God said, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God didn't remove Paul from the trial but saw him through the trial. I'm just going to finish reading 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ 
may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's saying that when that happens, when those things happen, what that is doing is teaching us to cling to the one who is strong. Because it's not us. We're not the strong ones. Being taught to cling to that which is strong, which is God. God is strong. God sends us His Son to forgive us of our sins, to make us a part of His family. It's through the trials that we learn to cling more and more to an all-sufficient Savior who is enough. Who is enough. Like We have the same promise, the same God, that Daniel had, the same God that Paul had, same Paul, the, the same God that Joseph had, regardless of your trial, no matter what it is, God is working. God is not absent. He was not absent then. He's not absent now. Are you clinging to an all-sufficient Savior? in the midst of a trial. Because we can let those trials define us. We can let them wreck our days, our months, our years, our decades. We can see that there's no hope. Or we can embrace them as God making us more and more into the image of Christ knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, he's saying this truth is disorienting. It's, it's hard to comprehend. But I feel like the more and more we practice this, the more and more that we remind ourselves of this truth, the more and more that we remind ourselves of the gospel, of God making us a part of his family. Jesus stepping into our mess, saving us from our sin. The more and more we remind ourselves of these truths, the more and more orienting this becomes. The more and more we understand, we're matured, we realize this sooner and sooner, just like Tanner was saying, the sooner we realize this, it's a a sign of spiritual maturity. I just want to end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Maybe a trial that is rocking our lives, that's given us way more than we can handle. Maybe a daily struggle feeling like you cannot handle what life is throwing at you. But we can also see that that trial, that wave, is throwing you into the arms of a loving God, of a perfect Heavenly Father that will never let us down, whose grace is sufficient, whose power is made perfect in weakness. So I don't know what your specific 
struggle, your trial. I don't know what that is for each and every one of you. But God is sovereign. God is in control. Nothing's going to change his love for you. Nothing is going to change his love for you. And there's joy. There's joy that can be found in knowing that God is not giving up on us, continuing to make us more like Jesus. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray for all of us. I'm going to pray for the trials that we're facing. Some we know, some we don't know. I'm going to pray for the trials that we're going to face. That God will continue to remind us of this truth. That he would orient our lives in a way that wants to be more like Jesus than anything else that this world can offer us. And that we will have confidence in knowing that God is in control.